Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. So this is the spiritual gospel. I don't know, it's week 12 or so. And actually, I've been sitting on this sermon for three weeks now because we had the snow and then we had our family emergency that took us away last uh, week. And then here we are this week. And I gotta tell you, each week I thought to myself, oh, if I just had one more week, then I'd be ready. And here I stand today. And this is a tough one. Sometimes as a minister, you're forced to talk about things that you might not necessarily be settled on in your own personal theology, um, but I don't want that to take us away from the task that we have this evening to look at God's word, to wrestle with it, and hopefully apply it to our lives. But I will hopefully um, inform you, and and I would hope that this is not a new uh, request, but what I say this evening um, is not the final word on this topic but I hope that it can encourage ongoing conversations as we try to understand uh, what it is that we can take away from this passage. So before I read it to us this evening, I'm gonna go ahead and pray and then we'll get to work. God, we are thankful for the opportunity that we have to be in this place, to be amongst friends and family and loved ones, to be surrounded by community, to be surrounded by the people that we are investing our lives in. For the folks that don't feel that, may you... um, Allow them to have opportunities to receive that community from us. And may you give us the eyes to see people on the margins, to invite them in, to invite them to do life with us together, whether that's around the table drinking coffee or that's serving together or that is um, even watching the Super Bowl together. Allow us to be a community that um, is not isolated or internalized, but help us to be a community that is open and honest with our own wrestlings. God, this evening uh, in this text, allow us to see you, allow us to be led by your spirit, allow us to be challenged, allow us to be encouraged and blessed and help us to leave here in a different place um, than how we came in. We pray these things all in Jesus' name, amen. So this is our text from John chapter four, beginning in verse 43. Actually, these first three verses, it's a bit of a a transitional text from the stories that we have heard where Jesus is in Samaria. He's ministering to the Samaritan woman at the well, and then he is ministering to the entire community because of the testimony of the woman at the well and how Jesus spoke to her heart, spoke about her life, offered her living water. She goes and tells the entire community, and they spend two full days with Jesus learning and being challenged and being transformed by his words. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 43. It says, after the two days, he left for Galilee. 
Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. The word of God for the people of God. Now, you guys have known me long enough to know that this first part of the sermon is not going to be uh, new for you, but this is real nerd stuff, I will say. I'm using a phrase that the kids used about three years ago. The interpretive struggle has been real for me, not just this week, but over the last almost month because, that, uh, because of how difficult this text is for a couple of different issues, maybe not some of the ones that you would pick up on, like these first two, like the historical critical issues within the text that, that appear. For example, when Jesus says now, um, or he points out that a prophet has no honor in his own country, this is set within this text in this transitional period where it says after the two days, Jesus goes back to Galilee. Jesus goes back to where he is from. Jesus goes back to where his people are. Jesus had gone south to Jerusalem to observe the Passover, and now over the last chapter or chapter and a half, he is going back home. And the thing that he says is that a prophet has no honor in his own country. But then in the very next verse, the way that it describes the people of Galilee, the people that um, take up space where Jesus is from, the text says that the Galileans welcome him. So scholars have been really puzzled over why this proverb where Jesus says that a prophet is without honor in his hometown, what town is he referring to? Is he referring to, the, to Galilee where he was born and where he was raised and where, uh, or excuse me, where, where he was raised um, and the people there that know him well? Or is he referring to Judea back south with Jerusalem? Or what, what's going on here? Jesus has been accepted in Samaria. Jesus has been accepted in Galilee according to this text. And people don't really know what in the world is going on and who is not receiving Jesus well. Now, that's not really that interesting, especially when you consider that throughout the, the next few chapters, the people in Galilee, Jesus' own hometown, Jesus keeps saying things like, you guys need signs, and you need to see miracles, and you need to see all this stuff, and you don't really get what is going on here, what I am doing for you. So even though the text says that the Galileans welcomed him, it might be the case that they don't really welcome him. 
They might just be welcoming the miracle worker who can get their kids to to move from being sick to the point of death to being well. They might just be moving from having no food to being fed. They might just want Jesus to be the miracle worker and not necessarily submit to Jesus as king or as Messiah or as Lord. Now, what got my attention more than that are the source critical issues. I mean, you know, when you're just reading the text, you think, what about these sources? Now, I'm going to give you something that you wouldn't get in any other church in Salisbury. I can guarantee you that. Maybe not in any other church on the Eastern Shore. We're going to go ahead and say that out loud, because what you're going to get right now is a little bit of source criticism of the Gospels. Specifically, we're going to look at the relationship between John, the book that we're studying, and the Synoptic Gospels. And if you don't know by now what the Synoptic Gospels are, they are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they are called the Synoptic Gospels because they are similar in most places, or at least in enough places, that scholars believe that there is some sort of borrowing or dependence among the three. Okay, so if we're looking at the Gospels like this, and check out this graph, guys. Boy, I miss the classroom sometimes because I can make a mean graph, all right? Just stick with me, and if you want to ooh and ah, you can, okay? Because it's beautiful. You don't get this stuff at SU, I know that, all right? (laughs) Except in Amanda's class. Now, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and if you're thinking about the Gospels and and the sources and how they were used, most scholars will say that Mark is the first Gospel that was written. This is called Markan priority. Say Markan priority. Oh, you feel smart already, don't you? Okay, take that back to your Bible study and see how it works. So you've got Mark and Priority and Matthew and Luke that were written later. Most scholars would say that they are dependent upon Mark because in many cases, Matthew and Luke share the outline, share the details, share the traditions, the stories that are in Mark. Now, at some points, however... There are texts within Matthew and Luke. And let me just tell you guys, as a colorblind man, it was real hard for me to match up these colors, okay? So if there's any sort of of discontinuity, that is my fault. It took Josh telling me, hey man, it's a pink base for me to say, oh, I just thought that was a white base. Didn't know. Beautiful though, is it not? An eggshell pink base. Okay, so anyway, there's, there's, no, What, what would you call it? What? Shell? Whatever, guys. Leave me alone. Okay, so there's, there's texts within Matthew and Luke that agree together, that disagree against Mark. So what scholars have done is they've hypothesized. Susie, what have they hypothesized? Q. Yes, Susie's taking a class on gospel criticism. She didn't know that was a real question, so I'll forgive her. They've, they've, um, they've assumed that there must be another source out there somewhere that Matthew and Luke are dependent upon, and they've named this Q, which is short for quell, which in German means source. Woo! Woo! Just stick with me, people. This is called the two-source theory for the Gospels. So most scholars would say that Matthew and Luke are dependent upon Mark and they're dependent upon a hypothetical source called Q, which contains a bunch of teachings and traditions from Jesus himself. Q does not exist. Q is completely and utterly hypothetical, but people say that it makes sense that if Matthew and Luke are agreeing together, they probably shared a source that's not Mark, that is outside of our... um, understanding because we do not have it. Now, this is where it gets interesting. 
there is also some text within Matthew and Luke that do not agree with Mark and that do not agree with each other. So scholars have hypothesized Er Matthew and Er Luke. An earlier version of Matthew and Luke, the traditions that these authors are dependent upon because they don't agree with any of the other synoptic gospels. So you have Matthew, which has borrowed from Mark. Matthew has borrowed from Q, maybe. And Matthew has borrowed from an earlier version of Matthew to create what we now know as Matthew. Luke has borrowed from Mark. Luke has borrowed from the hypothetical Q, maybe, we don't know. And Luke has used an earlier version of Luke to uh, formulate what we now have as Luke. Folks, let me just tell you this for a second. Because sometimes the things that are put out there onto the interwebs, they don't necessarily reflect what might be the reality of how we got our Bible. It's almost as though God just dropped our leather-bound NIVs out of the, the heavens above, and we say, oh, here it is. It has no history. It has no story. It just happened out of nothing. Creation ex nihilo with regard to our Bible. Not the case. There is good evidence, it seems, that there have been other uses of tradition and texts that have gone into the creation of our Bible. Now, let me say this for the people in the seats that are feeling like, oh, I don't like where you're going. I don't like this. If God deemed it to be so, and if God said it was okay for the authors to be dependent upon earlier traditions, I don't know about you, but I'm okay with that. Okay? Sometimes we hold the Bible to a higher standard than maybe what the Bible is holding itself to, if that makes sense. Just mull that over and come back to it. Now, within this whole matrix of craziness, you've got oral traditions as well. And I should throw this in because some people debunk this entire theory and say the reason why they're so similar is because there are stories about Jesus that have been told around the campfire for so long that when the authors tell something that's the same... They're just dependent upon the traditions that they have. And this isn't like that game of telephone where I say something weird to Jesse and she passes it along, along the way and then by the time we get back to Rachel, it's completely jacked up. That's not what's happening here. In an oral culture, such as the first century Jewish culture, they were very good with passing on tradition. Okay? This doesn't go from me telling a story to it getting completely jacked up when we go back to Brian or to Rachel. This is um, people using oral tradition. And sometimes, this is so theologically loaded, I hope you're ready for it. Sometimes the authors tweak these traditions or these texts to get a certain theological point across to their audience. Just like if I was talking to Tracy about something, it might look different than how I talk to Laura about the same thing. This is how communication works. And people at this time felt freedom to deal with these traditions in a way that proved their theological point. And I would say God inspired that. Okay. Now, with regard to all of this, you have to ask the question, well, what the heck do we do with John? Because John is completely crazy compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you read these four gospels right in a row, John is the spiritual gospel. John 
presents a picture of Jesus that is not presented in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's completely dissimilar, but John, by all accounts, is the latest of the Gospels. So scholars, again, have wondered, how does John use these earlier traditions in the compilation of his Gospel? And now this is where I'm going to ask you to take my hand and we're going to make a leap, okay? Or we're just going to take a step, a small baby step together as we try to connect some of these pieces because I am going somewhere with this. So when we hear this story about Jesus healing a royal official's son, some scholars have said this looks and feels and and, and reads like other stories in the synoptic gospels, even though they are dissimilar. Okay? So for example, we have two stories in Matthew and Luke about Jesus healing the centurion's boy. I've got boy in quotes, and you'll see why here in a minute. This is a story that you, you might know, then you might know well. Jesus comes into the town of Capernaum. Um, the centurion either meets Jesus or sends a delegation to Jesus and uh, on behalf of a sick child in the care of the centurion. He asks Jesus to heal, but he says, do not come to my house. I am unworthy for you to be with me. I am a man of authority. All you have to do, Jesus, is simply say the word and my son or my boy or my servant will be healed. And Jesus says to this individual or to this delegation, I've never seen such faith among even my own people that I am seeing right now from you. Go, your boy lives. Now, there's a lot of correspondences between these stories and the story that we have in the book of John. For example, the healing story, it features the town of Capernaum. Jesus is asked to heal a boy. The boy's illness is completely debilitating. The supplicant or the one who asks Jesus for a favor is a person of rank. It's not just Joe Blow on the street. It is a military official or a royal official or someone who has some rank. The boy then finally is healed from a distance. So scholars see all of these similarities and they begin to wonder, does John borrow from this other story about the centurion and how Jesus heals this person? Now, I do want to highlight some of the differences between these stories just because I think that's important. And here's a moment in life when I've prepared a sermon and right in the middle of it, I think to myself, oh, I don't know about this but I'm gonna go with it anyway, okay? Because I believe that it's important for us to know what our book is all about, and I believe it's important for us to even see the differences between these stories, all right? And if your gut says, Jesus healing a centurion's boy is different than Jesus healing a royal official's son, go with that, but also deal with the fact that the two stories about Jesus healing the centurion's boy also present some neat and fun issues for us to deal with. For example, in Matthew, the centurion meets Jesus at the city's entrance, whereas in Luke, the centurion sends a delegation, a Jewish delegation, elders from the people to go and to meet Jesus. And in Luke, the Jewish delegation says, this guy is legit, Jesus. If you were going to heal anybody's kid, it would be this guy because of the way that he treats us. And this was a, um, a Roman centurion, a Roman military person. And for the Jews at that time to say, he's, he's legit, he's kind, He's loving Jesus. If you were to do anything, then do it for this person here. 
In John, it's a royal official who leaves Capernaum to go meet Jesus in Cana. It's about an 18-mile trip. Most people think it would take a couple of days for this uh, official to get from point A to point B uh, based on how quickly people travel uh, back in the day. So you can see that there's similarities, but there's also differences. Jesus is asked to heal a boy. For example, in Matthew, it's an undefined boy. It's a pice. It could be a son or it could be a servant, which is interesting because in Luke, it's a servant. And in John, it's a son. Jesus is asked to heal this boy's illness because it's debilitating. In Matthew, the boy is lying paralyzed. In Luke, he is sick to the point of death. In John, he has a fever also to the point of death. The supplicant is a person of rank. In Matthew and Luke, it's a Roman centurion. It's a Gentile. It's not a Jewish person. It's somebody from outside of the fold. And Jesus says, that dude has faith more so than any other Jewish person I've ever met in my life. And they are exemplary. Whereas in John, it is probably the case that it is a Jewish royal official who's serving Herod. It's important to note that in any of these cases, nobody likes any of these people. A military man that could put uh, the Jews under their suppressive power and a sellout who was working for Herod in the royal temple, who's just roaming about in their purple garb and hoity-toity risking their safety as they move amongst the people. Nobody likes these, guys, these people, okay? which makes Luke's um, description of the person as one who loves the Jews even more important for us to hear. And then also, finally, the boy is healed at a distance. Jesus just speaks it into existence. He doesn't go to the house of the centurion. He just says, your son will live. Your boy will live. Your servant will live. And the same in John, though note the difference. He's not praising anyone's faith. In fact, he says, you guys... You show up and you want your signs and you want your miracles and you won't believe without them. And the official says, please. And Jesus, I don't know the tone here, but in the story, it's got, it might have a bit of an edge. Your son lives. That might be a bad, a bad reading of Jesus here, but he's not completely excited about what is taking place because of the way that he introduces this, this story. We also have a story in uh, the book of Mark that is a bit more dissimilar because of the characters involved. It's not a person of high rank. It's actually a woman, a Gentile woman who goes to Jesus and says, please heal my daughter. I've got to read this to you because we have conceptions of who Jesus is and sometimes they don't fit with what's actually in the text. I'm going to blow your mind here. Are you ready? You're on the edge of your seats. Maybe. Okay. Jesus left that place and went into the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know that he had entered a house, but he could not hide. In fact, a woman whose young daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard about him right away. She came and fell at his feet. Now this woman was Greek. She was Syrophoenician by birth and she begged Jesus to throw the demon out of her daughter. And this is what Jesus says. Are you ready? This is not a good devotional. Jesus says, the children have to be fed first. It's not right to take the children's bread and to toss it to the dogs. I don't know many songs about this story, you know? The woman comes to Jesus and says, heal my daughter. It's, you're the last hope that I have. And Jesus said, it's not right 
to feed, to take the food from the kids. You don't even get the crumbs, okay? And then the woman says this. She says, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And in the common English Bible, Jesus says this. Good answer. It's like Jesus was bested at his own game when he says the children have to be fed first. It's not right to take the children's bread and to toss it to the dogs. And the woman who comes back and says, but even the dogs get the crumbs. And Jesus says, touche. I see what you did there, Syrophoenician woman. Go on home. The demon has already left your daughter. And when she returned to her house, she found the child lying on the bed with the demon gone. There's similarities between this story and the story that we're looking at in John. The woman seeks out Jesus when he arrives in her town. Her daughter is home with an illness. In this case, it's demon possession. It's not a sickness, but it is, it's advanced and it is um, completely problematic. Jesus's first response is harsh, just like in John when he says, all you guys want is signs and wonders and miracles. Here, Jesus says it's not right to take the kids' food. It's a harsh rebuke from Jesus, but Jesus eventually heals the daughter as he eventually heals the son in John. And the girl is healed from a distance because Jesus just says, go. The demon has already left your daughter. Now I know that when you guys are reading the Bible, none of this is, is, is on your purview. Like you don't care about any of this. And maybe you've been sitting here for the last 12 to 13 minutes thinking, I still don't care about any of this. What are we even talking about? I just want to show you that for some people, there's issues that transcend the text, that transcend the theology to even say like, what are the differences between these stories? And how did John roll out of bed to tell the stories that he told? Was he borrowing from other traditions and adjusting them to meet the needs of his people? Or is this a completely dissimilar passage where Jesus is healing not a centurion's son or boy or servant, where Jesus is healing a royal official's son, not a woman's daughter who's demon-possessed. Is it possible that all three things happened? Absolutely. You want me to say something controversial? Is it possible that John is adapting the other stories for his purposes? Maybe. If that's the case, does it take away from the power of Jesus? No, we have to learn how to deal with the text for what it is to see what it's attempting to give to us. But these are not the issues that I want to talk about tonight, even though I've spent the last 15 minutes talking about it. When I have the chance to make a really sweet graph, you know I'm going to do it, people. You know I'm going to give that to you, okay? But here's the real deal. It's not just does, Jesus in his, or does John in his story of Jesus healing the royal's official son, does he borrow from the centurion's boy in Matthew and Luke, or does he borrow from Jesus healing the woman's daughter in Mark? That's not the point. The point for me is what in the world do we do with a story like this? So you're not going to ask the weird questions about which place is Jesus' hometown because he says he doesn't have honor, but yet he seems to be honored in most places. You're not going to ask that question when you read it in the morning at five o'clock as you got Caleb playing softly in the background. You're definitely not going to ask questions about, I wonder which source John is dependent upon in his retelling of this healing miracle story. You're not going to ask that question, but the question that you might ask is, what the heck do I do with this story in light of my life and my experience? For me, an easy first place to go is as a parent. 
And if you're not fitting into the parent category, maybe caretaker, that sounds pretty official. Maybe it's just the way that you advocate for a loved one or a friend. If you had somebody who was laid up somewhere and you knew that there was something that you could do for them, maybe what we glean from this story is I, like the royal official, or I, like the centurion, or I, like the Syrophoenician woman, I wouldn't take any junk from Jesus. I would beat down the door until we received whatever it is that we needed for this person to be made whole again. In other words, we do whatever we can do to care for our loved ones, even if it puts us at risk. Remember the hoity-toity royal official in his purple robes walking slowly through the streets of Cana, thinking, I might get jumped at any moment because people don't like me because I take their money and I work for the enemy, even though I'm one of their people putting himself at risk for the sake of his son because it was worth it for him to do that. Or the Syrophoenician woman, the story is so beautiful because of that weird response from Jesus. I'm not going to take the bread from the kids. It's not right to do that. To which she says, I just want a crumb. For people in the room that have those relationships, maybe there's someone in your life that you would advocate for. And the way that you initially take this text is, that's the example that I should live out. Now let's think for a moment, and I would say to you, absolutely, but maybe not from this text. Absolutely, we as parents should be advocating for our children. Absolutely, we should be interceding to Jesus for our kids. Absolutely, we should be asking for miracles to take place. But when we go immediately to us and what we learn about us from any passage of the Bible, we miss a more foundational truth, namely, what is it that we learn about Jesus? And even beyond that, what do we do when life works itself out where you as a parent or you as a loved one, you've done everything that you can do to advocate for the person in your life, but God has not met you there. God has not answered your plea in any real way or in the way that you wish that God would. What then do you do? Another way of reading this passage is for evangelical Christians, the way that they, they roll up. And for most of us, our background, if it's not in Roman Catholicism, it's in evangelical Christianity, the non-denominational churches that we know with the, the smoke and the lights and the really cool music and the, the statements of faith on the, on the webpage and that kind of stuff. Like that's, that's where a lot of us have, have come from. And for a lot of us, we would hear a story like this and the challenge would be have big faith, pray big prayers, expect big things, just like the royal official. Risk it to get before Jesus, to ask for that healing, to ask for Jesus to work, to intercede, do whatever it takes for you to have that audience where you say, Jesus, heal this person that I love. And this is the context where many of us have grown up. It's the context where many of us have been taught. And I want to challenge us. There is nothing wrong with having big faith. There is nothing wrong with praying big prayers. There is nothing wrong with expecting God to intervene in sometimes miraculous ways on behalf of our loved ones. However, I would say this. 
What happens when those prayers go unanswered? What happens when God doesn't heal? What happens when the miracle doesn't occur? It causes this cognitive dissonance for a lot of us because we've been taught that if we just pray hard enough, this will happen. If we believe hard enough, this thing will happen. If we just have enough faith, then this thing will happen. And if it doesn't happen, then we begin to wonder what we did to not be able to thwart the plan of God to inflict harm on our loved ones. Now, the reason why this might be... um, Part of my three-week pause for this um, is because I've learned a lot over the last week or so, and I've heard a lot of things from people in the funeral procession line, and I can't tell if it's just something that people say because they don't know what to say, or I can't tell if it's something that people actually believe, but when they take tragedies and they say, this was God's plan, when they take something that so clearly is not part of God's plan, And because they have to reduce it to something, they have to make it make sense in their box. They say this was part of the divine's plan for this individual's life, whether it is death, whether it is sexual molestation, whether it is some form of abuse, whether it is what we make God into the author of all sorts of evils to protect our theological box because we don't know what to do when God doesn't answer the prayers that we submit to him. So what happens when a miracle doesn't happen? Who is on the hook when the miracle doesn't happen? When the healing doesn't take place? When you have risked everything to be in front of Jesus and you have said, take this thing from my loved one. Who's on the hook when it doesn't happen? Do we put God on the hook and say, damn you, God. Do we put ourselves on the hook and say, I didn't have enough faith. I didn't believe hard enough. And if I did, then something else would have happened. Do we put the enemy on the hook and say, this is all his fault? What do we do in those moments when life doesn't work according to the philosophy that we have built up for ourselves or the church has propped up for you? I want to submit to you that in this text, we're steered away from some of these issues. And I think that the reason why we get to that parent reading or where we get to that uh, kind of baseline Christian reading, I'm not here to throw evangelicals under the bus, good grief. We come from this tradition and we have learned so much from it. And some of us might even still be trying so hard to make it make sense for us. But I think sometimes the cards that we have been given are meant to play a different game altogether. And in this text, perhaps we're supposed to learn a different message. For example, when the royal official shows up to Jesus and Jesus' first response is not great, it seems as though he is, he is cautioning this person from putting their faith and their trust in something external, putting their faith and trust in something that they can see, putting their faith and trust in the answer to the prayer, not the one to whom they are praying. Did you catch that? Putting their faith and their trust in the result not in the person who might make the result a reality. Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. And in this text, this this isn't enough for the person. They continue to plead and advocate for their loved one. In fact, they go on to say, sir, you could also translate that Lord. I don't think it's quite that formal. Lord, come down before my child dies. I've risked everything to be here. 
I'm out on this limb. It's the last move that I have. I know that you can do it. And perhaps the thing that Jesus has said is occasioning the response of the official to prove to Jesus that it's not just about the external. Because when Jesus says, go, your son will live, it says that the man took Jesus at his word. The man hears what Jesus says and immediately he goes. He doesn't ask Jesus to come with him. He doesn't ask for some sort of divine sign to prove that what's happened. He says, uh, as soon as Jesus says, your son lives, he goes and he starts to travel back home. Some commentators have said this might take him uh, a day or two to get back. Imagine the trip, parents. You've done everything you can do to get in front of Jesus and you've had this weird altercation with Jesus, this weird exchange, and he says, go, your son lives and on that way home what are the thoughts that you have what the text says the man took Jesus at his word N.T. Wright says the distinction between believing because we've seen something and believing on the strength of Jesus's word remains important throughout the gospel this is a theme that we'll keep coming back to it reaches its final dramatic statement in Jesus's gentle rebuke to Thomas in uh, chapter 20 verse 29 where Jesus says have you believed because you've seen blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe and this in my preparation is where I, I get to the point and I say I wish I had one more week I wish I had one more month or one more year to really contemplate what in the world is going on here. What is it that we are believing collectively? What is it that we are believing individually? What is, it, what is the word of Jesus that we are accepting for ourselves and standing in? I don't know if this is an appropriate tie, but I'll, I'll go here and then we'll, we'll close it up. I think for so many of us, the thing that we desperately want to believe in is the big monumental experiences in our lives that can only be chalked up to divine intervention. But when it says in the text that the man left and took Jesus at his word, it makes me stop and wonder, well, what are the things that Jesus has said to us? What are the things that Jesus has claimed for himself with regard to who we are that I would actually challenge that we don't take him at his word. I'll give you one or two. I will be with you wherever you go. There are moments I know in my life where that truth is buried in my own guilt, in my own shame, in my own sense of unworthiness, where there's no way on earth do I ever believe that Jesus would be with me where his word is not trusted by me and the way that I live demonstrates that to be the case. There's also things that Jesus has, has said to me, uh, to us, things like love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And instead of taking Jesus at his word, I at times will manipulate that so I can still dislike some people. And I can love the people that love me back and harbor bitterness and resentment to the people that have hurt me or hurt my family. And in those moments, I don't take Jesus and believe his word. I bury it because it's uncomfortable for me to live in a way that reflects the trust that I have in him. Maybe for some of you, the real miracle this evening would be for you to finally accept the fact that you are forgiven 
that you are loved, that you are welcomed and accepted. Perhaps the bigger miracle would be for us to believe that Jesus can use us, that Jesus wants to include us, that the church community needs us, that you are wanted at the table, that grace is freely given to you. Perhaps the real miracle would be for us to accept some of that so that we can live in a different way and change the world around us. Perhaps the real miracle would be for us to live that out around the people who need hope. Perhaps this story is not just saying, have big faith and pray big prayers and expect big things. Perhaps this text is really saying, trust Jesus in everything because that will lead you to miracles that you can't even begin to imagine. This is not a teaching that says to you, please get this. If you need to write it down, write it down. Josh did not say miracles don't happen. Josh did not say don't pray for them. But maybe what I am saying, and this is what I'm still attempting to work out. Perhaps what I am saying is there are miracles that could be taking place in our lives every single day, but we don't let them happen because we discount them as too small, too insignificant, and we don't trust Jesus at his word. My hope tonight is that when we hear these simple truths, that we are always loved, that while we were at our worst, Christ died for us, that through our belief in him, we have life and we have hope. It's my prayer this evening that we would begin to accept that and to see that for the miracle that it is so that we can live a transformed life for the sake of the people around us who might not need or expect some sky-ripping-open sign and wonder from the divine down to us, but what they really need is something so much smaller, a word of affirmation, a word of inclusion, a demonstration of love. And while we wait, and while we expect, and while we hope for the big things, may we live out the tiny miracles along the way where we just take Jesus at his word and we share that with those around us. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.